Let's pray as we get into um, this third week in our, our series of Emmaus. Lord, we thank you for your grace uh, that's just manifested through the stories of Ron and Linda and Kate and the boys, and we thank you so much for um, the encouragement that we hear from them um, to persevere and, and our trust in you and allowing you to work through all things. Um, so we, we thank you. Thank you for them, and we thank you for Kate, and we thank you, Father, for all that you are doing in the midst of this community. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this series, Emmaus, along the way, is a series about the Christian life. It's fundamental, actually. We're, just, we're looking at foundational truths about walking this journey of Christ-centered transformation together. It's really about becoming more like Jesus and making him known in the context of, of community. So... Um, Bear with me today as I do that a fair amount. So the fall is here and all of its germs. Um, so hey, we are uh, we're looking each week in this series at uh, a different dimension of Luke's uh, story at the end of his gospel, Luke 24, about two disciples of Jesus who have just left Jerusalem. They know that Jesus is dead. They've heard that he has been raised from the dead. But yet they fail to grasp that he is truly alive. And so the, the first week we talked about the importance of the discipline of walking together in the midst of our disorientation and learning to discern Christ present with us together. And last week Dave shared with us the, the, the important practice of listening, that uh, ultimately we need to learn to listen long and uh, to hear in, in a timely way and to listen selflessly. And this week, uh, I want to kind of zoom back up to about 30,000 feet. Uh, I've been saying recently how there's nothing more <laughs> practical than good theory. So all the engineers in the room said it. Amen. Um, and, uh, and so what I want to do is kind of take a, a, a launch back up and, and look kind of from a higher view. What forms the basis of community? What, what forms the basis of transforming community and propels us forward in the same direction together on our own Emmaus roads. So I'll begin with my own family. Um, I have really great parents. Uh, my, my, my parents, Rich and Steph, you may have met them. They come often because the folks live in Seattle, and so they're here a lot. And uh, they are fantastic in-laws to my wife. They are generous grandparents to my kids. They are kind, generous, and the real deal. Not a lot stresses me out about who they are. The one thing that really stresses me out is choosing where we're going to eat when we have not had a plan with them, right? So for whatever reason, seven people deciding when to eat, I don't, it's just it's gnarly. All hell breaks loose when we have not yet made a plan about where we're going to eat on a given night. And it usually goes something like this. Hey, what sounds good? Anything. Okay. How about that new Thai place that just opened up? Oh, I, I, that doesn't sound very good. Okay. Right. How about pizza? Oh, I don't eat pizza anymore. You don't? I was raised on it, right? Or like, how about Mexican food? Oh, I had that last Thursday. Last Thursday? I ate it eight times in a day. What are you talking about last Thursday? My wife sent this to me this week in a text, and I think it sums it up well. I don't care where we eat as long as it's not any of the last 12 places you just mentioned. <laughs> Group decision-making around food, amen? This is kind of how it works. And it, it isn't stressful because we don't love each other. It isn't stressful because, you know, we're incapable of making group decisions. It's stressful because instead of spending our time focused on something we all care about, the focus shifts 
to trying to guess what each person is going to be happy with, right? And it goes to our individual desires. So our our, our common desire for quality time and whatever now shifts to competing individual desires about different ethnic foods in the Portland Metroplex. And so it, there isn't anything immoral about this. This isn't sinful. Uh, it just happens to be a high stakes game of culinary battleship where we all try to guess the secret location of the other person's most desired food because nobody's coming out with their you know top five list. Anyway, why do I bring all this up? Because community is hard. Community is difficult. Community is difficult on its own, but it's especially difficult if we don't share the same common desire, the same common ultimate aim. So the more the emphasis of our relationships is actually on a shared desire, a shared direction, the more natural we can experience a deep significant bond and actually be the kind of community we've been talking about. So how do we build this kind of community? How do we actually move towards having this shared aim and this shared desire so that we can experience a deep, authentic, transforming kind of community we've been talking about in this series? Well, I want to share three things today from Luke's story in Luke 24, about how we move this direction. Three things. We, we build from a common story, we build on a common hope, and we build toward a, a common pursuit. So let's take a look at what Luke says again. And, and, and this is only week three, so if you think you're tired of this story, wait till week seven. Okay? Um, but, because here's, here's the thing. This is a rich story. It's this tapestry of eyewitness testimony, and it has profound spiritual truth. So each week we're going to take another look at a different dimension of this story. So take a look with me at what Luke says. We'll begin with verse 17, uh, the second half. It says that they, the two disciples, stood still, looking uh, their faces downcast. One of them, named Clopas, asked him, that is Jesus, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, Jesus asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. 
Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together saying, it is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. What a story. What a fantastic story. Uh, here's the first thing from this story that helps us uh, build community on, on, the, on the basis that we're describing here, the kind of community that helps us have spiritual companions. The first thing we, we see here is that we need to build our community on a common story. Take a look at verse 21 with me. As the two disciples are sharing with Jesus their thoughts about Jesus, they're sharing their dismay. They're, showing, they're sharing their, their hopes as well. And uh, they say this. They say, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Now, in order to begin to grasp the gravity of what they're saying in that one sentence, we have to understand that they are talking about their hopes for Jesus within a very particular story. They are understanding their lives and their journey from the vantage point of a narrative. They have been shaped by a story. And so they're walking together under a common worldview. They're walking together with a common lens for meaning, a common narrative. And so when we read the Bible, however, we can't assume that we have the same narrative, that we look at the Bible with the same lens that the people in the Bible are being described as. We look at everything through through lenses. I was wearing contacts the other week, by the way, and some people were like, I, I like at Sunday, like at, at church, and people were like, what happened to your face? I'm like, science happened to my face. There's these things called contact lenses. Was, and I think people were caringly wondering if I got LASIK. I'm like, no. Anyway, so uh, besides the point, that's a freebie for you. We look at life through lenses. We see everything shaped and framed within the context of a view and a story. And as modern Western people, we don't share the same lens as the two on the Emmaus Road. And so I want to begin by just pointing out three basic worldview questions that form the lens. They might be a simplification of worldview lenses, but our answers to these three questions shape the way we view and experience all of life. They form the outline of our narrative and determine a great deal of our experience in community. Here are the, here are the three worldview questions. Why are we here? What is the problem? And what is the solution? Why are we here? What is the problem? What's the solution? Why are we here? Why do I exist? What is my purpose? What is, what is the meaning of life? What's the problem? What has gone wrong? And what is the solution? How do we fix it? Now, for the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, they share the same answers. They were experiencing the road within the narrative of Israel's scriptures Right? The story of Israel and her God. And to say that we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel is essentially saying we thought Jesus of Nazareth was question number three's answer. Right? He was the question, or he was the answer to question number three. Now, a lot of us might initially say, yeah, I think Jesus is the solution too. I'm in church. But 
To the degree that our narrative is shaped differently than the scriptures, our questions one and two may be very different to the disciples. And therefore, what three ends up meaning is very different than what the disciples meant. So, one of the realities that often keeps us from grasping the message of the scriptures is that we look at the Bible through our own lens. Now, I tend to hear and, and, and see folks thinking about the Bible in the context of their own stories. Now, this is good to an extent, but we tend to see Jesus fitting into my story, like my small s story, like my narrative. Now, for the two disciples on the road, this was more about Jesus fitting into God's story, and they were fitting into God's narrative with a big S or a big N. And we often have trouble living out our faith because instead of allowing our story to be authored by God as the authority of our story, we tend to try to jam God into our story where we are the author and we assign meaning to life and its events as our own authority. I've been reading about uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor. Any, any Charles Taylor readers? I, I thought not. Okay. So Charles Taylor is this Catholic uh, Canadian philosopher who uh, has a, a phenomenal study on the, the modern social space of Western secularism, right? And so the secular age is the age in which both belief and unbelief are equally valid in society. And so in our social space, it's valid that you might believe. It is also valid that you might not believe. And that is how Taylor describes the secular age. And he says that within this age, this is how we are trained to view life. He, he calls it an imminent frame, that we frame or uh, view life through the lens of what is imminent, that is, through the natural order of things. And so within the imminent frame... We have no reference to what's transcendent, above us. We live with simply making meaning and significance of our lives within this self-enclosed, self-sufficient, naturalistic universe without any reference to what's transcendent. Are, are you with me so far? Does this sound like our culture? And so the process of imminentization or the process of becoming more and more increasingly enclosed within this story is this process where, where we are more and more cut off from what's transcendent. We don't look to what's transcendent for meaning. We look to what's right now in front of us. Uh, and that is where we get our meaning. So here's what all of this has to say to us. Taylor's take on our modern secular space means this, that without transcendence, without an authority, authoring meaning, right, then all of my life is framed purely within my own individualistic lens, that I view life as my story, and so meaning is all about what I want, what I need, and what I desire. And so every narrative, then, is simply one individual's take on life. There's no shared meaning and there's no transcendent anchor that serves as an authority or author of a larger story. Try to do community when everybody is assigning their own meaning to life. Right? There is no common authority or reference point. And so within the imminent frame, what are the answers to our worldview questions? 
How would we answer these three basic worldview questions if we're cut off from the transcendent and framed through the imminent, pushed down into individualistic stories? Why are we here within this take on life? What do you guys think? What, what, I'll see if you got what nine o'clock got. Why would we say we are here within that context? Shoot it out. On accident? Therefore? Glorify God. I don't think so, because he's not in the picture. No transcendent. So, yeah. Why are we here? So that I can be happy. Right? And if God is a part of that picture, but it's still the imminent frame, then God just wants you to be happy. Right? So he serves your story at that point. So why are we here? To be happy. If, you're, if you've gone to counseling, you are here for self-actualization. Right? <laughs> so, right? And so what, what is the point of life? Reach your potential. Right? Get, be happy. So what's the problem within that narrative? You're not happy. Right? Why am I not happy? I, right? I don't have the stuff that makes me happy. I don't have the things that make me happy. Right? There are threats and obstacles in the way of me reaching my potential. It might be other people. It might be a lack of resources. So then what's the solution? What's that? Try harder. Yeah. Get the stuff that makes me happy. Go get the things that make me happy. Overcome the threats to your happiness. Now, things in this context is not just material stuff. This isn't just like, you know, when you're a kid and you don't get Teddy Ruxpin, your life falls apart, right? Like, this is... That was my life. I didn't get a Teddy Ruxpin. Anyway, but I had good parents and they didn't give me everything I wanted. So, uh, not just the material, uh, but things here can be a relationship. Things here can be a career. Someone's approval. Maybe it's status. Maybe it's security. And maybe it's comfort. And when we are living out narratives framed by imminence, to use Taylor's categories, we only then get involved with community to the extent that it serves my story, that it makes me happy. So you only bind yourself to the kind of people who are going to advance your aims. Right? We only give ourselves to people who offer us something in return for our story. And so this kind of community paradigm is easily jettisoned and easily divided, and it kind of sounds a lot like us trying to decide what we're going to eat on a Friday night when we're all together as a family. Right? Now, for the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, they're not living within the imminent frame. They are living within Israel's story, and they, they share the same big story. There is a transcendent God of Israel who narrates their life. How do you think they would respond to these three worldview questions? Why are we here? I think they would respond and say something along the lines of, we're here as creatures. We're created beings made in the image of God. And we're here to relate to God and reflect his character back into creation. And so as Israelites, it means that we're part of his, his vehicle to bless all the peoples, to be a, a light to the nations, a covenant community that embodies the covenant character of Israel's God. Well, what's wrong then in that story? What's wrong, they might say, is that ultimately humans have rebelled. They've pushed off God as author and so the powers of evil now permeate and enslave the world. 
And as Israelites, we too have failed to be a light. And we need to be redeemed. We need to be rescued because we've fallen into the same trap of idolatry and injustice that all the nations have fallen into. And so now we need redemption and rescue. So what's the solution? They would say the solution is that humans need to be reconciled to their creator through this messianic king who will come and rule with righteousness and justice and he'll conquer the powers of evil. And as Israelites, we await God's Messiah to take up our infirmities and our iniquities, like he says in Isaiah 53, and we need the kingdom of God and the redemption of Israel so that through Israel, God will draw the nations to himself. So I think this is, this is the story they're living. And it's their common hope in the one true God to bring their big story to its rightful conclusion that draws them together on the road. They're in dismay because they thought they had the answer to number three, but it turns out and from their perspective, they were wrong. But Jesus then comes alongside and he actually says, actually, all of your hope centers on what I've just done in Jerusalem. That my suffering and subsequent glory accomplished the true solution to the great problem. And that I am actually the answer to number three, just in ways that you hadn't expected. If this were Taylor, he might say that the transcendent took on the imminent and then utterly transformed it. Now, instead of coming as a mighty king, Jesus comes as a humble servant. In order to destroy the power of evil without destroying us. So he takes it on and allows it to do his, its worst to him. And he absorbs sin and death into himself. And he takes its consequence so we can have his reward for his faithfulness. And now because of what Jesus has done in reconciling the world, he sends his spirit to give power to humans to live out their true purpose in knowing and reflecting the one true God. And he forms a new community now that partners with Jesus in his kingdom mission. The question for us today then is what story are you living? Are you living with a small s story where you've kind of found Jesus to fit neatly into your own narrative? Where he helps you be happy? Or or have you allowed God to author you? He's invited you into his story. As you move towards inhabiting his story, you allow him to author your life. And on the basis of that shared story, our community begins to form and have an ability to endure. So that brings us to the next point. How do we build deep, authentic community? We begin by building from a shared story, a common story. But next we have to build on a common hope. To build on a common hope. See, our stories determine our ultimate hope. Depending on how you view your story, you'll have a different hope. Now, we all have different levels of hope. I hope to have something really good for lunch after church. I also hope my kids always feel loved, valuable, and secure. Those are different levels of hope, right? I would gladly give up lunch for the sake of the second, right? But then there's ultimate hope, and ultimate hope is a few layers deeper. And and ultimate hopes are the places where we rest our security, and our identity. So how do you know what your ultimate hopes are? Well, one of the things that helps, I think, often uh, to see where we are placing our hopes is to pay attention to the places we have anxiety. I I know where where I'm hoping based on where I'm anxious. Now, we live in an age of anxiety. 
we live in an age of anxiety probably because of the loss of transcendent, right? Because we live in the imminent frame, it leads to infinite anxiety. And I, I think our country has, an, has, has hit this place of unprecedented anxiety, right? We live in this, this season of insane anxiety over the, our current political election, right? This hardly needs any comment, and yet I think that the anxiety is, is helpful for us because it points to something. There's a lot of Jesus people who are really anxious over this. And, and, and when there's anxiety in the church over a political election, it reveals something to us. It, it reveals that we have a fundamental confusion of hope. You see, the, the gospel hope of Jesus Christ says that Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. Caesar is a mere mockery of the lordship of Jesus. And there's a lot of Caesars. They might want to make things great again. They might just want to say, yes, we can. It doesn't matter. They're all a version of Caesar. It's all empire to the degree that we put our hope in it. And so the American political hope often just gives lip service to the lordship of a crucified God. But the anxiety reveals that the true sense of security rests on the power of elected individuals. And I want to just say, stop the anxiety if you're anxious today. Go read the book of Daniel this week. Daniel's a guy who is subject to empire like no one else. And how much anxiety does Daniel have in the face of empire, in, in the face of all of its lion's dens and all of its fiery furnaces? Zero, right? He, the only thing that troubles him is some stuff God says, right? Um, nothing about Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he... he rather looks to the son of man, right? The, the one who would wrestle the beasts of empire and come out victorious and rule from the throne of the ancient of days and receive all worship from all nations. That's who Daniel looks to in the midst of empire. And so maybe, maybe global stuff isn't what gets you anxious. Maybe when you assess your anxieties, it's far less global and far more personal. But maybe today for you, the thing that triggers anxiety is how you're perceived, uh, maybe by that coworker or that friend on Facebook or that kid at school or that neighbor, which reveals that you have an ultimate hope shifted towards your own image. Or, or maybe uh, you're, you're sensing an anxiety of being marginalized or unheard, which, which shows this hope and a continuing relevance with others. It, it really doesn't matter, but the point is that all of these things aren't bad desires. They just can't bear the weight of ultimate hope. And so here's what happens when Christian people end up anxious uh, we, we get caught up in the narratives of our worlds. What we're doing is we've been, we've been caught in the imminent frame. And so we, we haven't yet allowed the gospel to, or maybe we aren't currently allowing the gospel to narrate hope for us. It's because gospel hope isn't just an idea. It's actually, it's a deep experience. And up to this point on the road, the two disciples, as they are walking along, even though the disciples had been told that Jesus is alive, they had not yet encountered him. He even came alongside them and they didn't recognize him. I, by the way, this is an interesting aside. I find it really interesting that the first proclaimers of the good news are women. I love, I love Luke's reversals. Right? He reverses the legitimacy structures all the time in his gospel. Right? And so it's these two guys on the road said, you know, some women amazed us. It would have saved them some emotional heartache if they would have just listened to the ladies. I think, you know, 
This usually works out. I think Lauren has maybe only ever had to say you were right like twice in our 10 years. Maybe. And that was probably being generous. And it's not because she lacks humility. I ju- you just listen and it works out better. She's just always right. So, <clears throat> um, maybe this will lead to a good lunch today. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. So, uh, <clears throat> so maybe um, the, the problem here, you know, <laughs> the thing is these folks these two disciples are walking on this road and they're disoriented by, by death because to this point they've only entertained ideas about hope but they have yet to encounter hope in person and there's a difference between entertaining an idea of hope and encountering a person who gives hope and so when anxieties rule we have to ask the question am I just reducing the gospel to some ideas or am I allowing the gospel to, to drive deep into my experience, to encounter me? And so after they went home, they invited Jesus to the evening meal. Jesus does a little fake out, like I'm going farther. And they say, no, come with us. And then Jesus does his weird thing. He takes the meal. He's the guest, yet he takes the meal. And he takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it. Which, by the way, are the exact same words as the Passover passage where Jesus takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it. And so it was in that moment, Luke says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. The Passover lamb is alive and he is feeding us. And they recognized him and they had an encounter with him and it changed everything. And so they, listen to this, it changed everything so much that they said, let's go find shelter for the night. And now immediately once they recognize him, verse 33, it says, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They had seven miles back the other direction to tell everybody the news because they had been reoriented by hope. They had been disoriented by death and now they're reoriented by hope. And their reorientation by hope means this. It means that they have a reality so concrete, so permanent, so universally relevant that literally nothing can diminish it. That everything in their life now hinges on it and they find their meaning through it. Because when they encountered the risen Jesus, their entire lives took a new shape. There's a single most important reality in human history. I read something this week in a book kind of unrelated to this message and I thought this is actually really, this fits. Oliver O'Donovan says this about the resurrection. He says, precisely because it is a reversal of Adam's decision to die, the resurrection of Christ is a new affirmation of God's decision that Adam should live. An affirmation that goes beyond and transforms the initial gift of life. For in the second Adam, the first is rescued. And he says about Adam, his deviance of will, its fateful leaning towards death, has not been allowed to uncreate what God created. This is their encounter with the risen Christ. It reverses their fears and offers them hope. So the only hope for a world who is, that is disordered is the triumph of the Son of God over sin and death and the only hope the one hope that's irreversible and universally relevant that forms the basis of community so we build from a common story and we build on a common hope a reality that that overshadows and shapes every other reality and it leads to this last point here and that is this that we build toward a common pursuit see until our ultimate hope is reshaped around the resurrection we'll always be tempted to build community on pseudo hopes Like we talked about in the first week, the wish dream of Bonhoeffer, right? He says that has to die. 
Right? False hopes will drag the community into false pursuits. And too often we engage in community built on shallow hope. Um, sometimes it's sincere and well-intentioned. But I, I would say this. Christian community, for example, that hopes merely in sin management is a, is a great example of this. If the best we can do is just kind of reduce how much we mess up. Like, let's just manage our sin. Let's just try to do that less. That's a shallow hope. Um, ever been to an accountability group? <laughs> this, is, this is that social construct where we say to one another, will you help me not do the thing I actually really want to do? Will you hold me accountable to doing the stuff I have absolutely no interest in? Right? What is that? It's a, it's a sincere and well-intentioned attempt at something that is built on a shallow hope. Right? Sin management. Let's just get better. Right? Let's pull up our bootstraps. Let's try really hard to do really good. I don't think this works. Right? This is not the hope of new creation bursting into the old. This is not the hope of a resurrection, of life conquering the grave, of hearts being refashioned and desires being transformed. It just puts scaffolding on old living. And so what happens when we move from entertaining ideas about hope to encountering hope in person is that it moves us, it shapes us, it ignites desires in us. And it launches us in a common pursuit. And so the resurrection says the kingdom of God is now. It's in the present. It's raising up old dead lives and creating new live ones in Jesus in relationship to him. And so when we build community on that hope, it leads to the pursuit of his kingdom. It leads to the pursuit of Jesus' prayer that the kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he wouldn't be praying it if it weren't possible. And the resurrection says it's actual and I've come to do it and install it in your life and in your community. And so our deep desire becomes transformed within this Jesus story and this resurrection hope. And the disciples say to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened up the scriptures? Hearts burning is the language of desire. We were longing for the kingdom and we missed it. We missed it, but this is our desire, and so it's our desire to see the kingdom come that launches us in the same direction. So let me give you five very quick things this morning on what it looks like to live in common pursuit for the kingdom that we desire. We, first of all, we pursue the king's rule in us. Does anything fall outside the scope of God's rule and reign? No. Right? No. And so we pursue God to rule and reign in every dimension of our lives together. And we say, God, I want you to rule and reign in my emotions, in my thinking, in my relationships, in my work, in every dimension of my life. The second thing is we pursue the king's ways in all of our relationships. How does Jesus treat his friends? He lays down his life for them. It's even how he treats his enemies. And so we learn to love at a cost, at expense. And if, I would say that if you are not motivated to love till it hurts on some level in your life, that you have missed this Jesus story. You're not captivated by resurrection hope. Uh, we, thirdly, uh, we, we pursue the king's people wherever they are. Who does the king love? Who are his people? Everyone, right? This, 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 we don't choose community based on just what we like. We don't do community groups around here based on common interests. 
That's just like we don't do that here. That's cool if you're into hiking groups. Do that, but we can't manage your social space. What we want to call you to is a deep, life-transforming relationship with people who don't even share the same interests as you, but they share the same story, the same hope, and the same pursuit of the kingdom. And that's actually far more important than anything else. And it forms and forges relationship. Fourthly, we pursue the king's justice wherever it's not recognized. Right? That, that how does God enact his will? Who does he do it through? Us. Oftentimes when we ask Jesus to, to answer our prayers, he usually says, yeah, go ahead, do it. Doesn't he? Go do it. Right? And so, so we address our, our structures in our society. And as a church, we live, again, as, as Luke's already pointed out, the women are the first, the first proclaimers of the gospel. That There's this new community that is like equal in value. And the rich and the poor are together and the men and women are together. And it's this amazing new community. And fifthly, we pursue kingdom partnership. How did Jesus do kingdom life? Did he do it alone? The only time he seems to be alone is on the cross, and even there I believe the Father's with him. And so he always calls people into partnership with with him. And so we resist isolation, and we, we invite other people to pursue the kingdom with us. So let's close here. What What's your story today? Why are we here? What's wrong? What's the solution? Who's authoring your story? Secondly, what's our ultimate home? Hope. Is it the crucified Savior, right, who is the risen Lord? On what reality are you resting? And thirdly, what's your deep pursuit? What is the thing that captivates your deepest desires? Are we pursuing the kingdom in all of its dimensions, personally, relationally, and missionally? So to anchor us in that story, Jesus offers us something. He says, I want to re-narrate your life every week that you gather. And so while my family struggles occasionally to make a decision about a meal, Jesus offers us a meal we can all agree on. It is a meal that re-anchors us, that restores us, that reminds us where our hope really lies. And he gives us a pursuit that re-energizes us from this day forward. And so he takes this Passover meal... Is this, this meal that reminded the Israelites that they had been set free from slavery in Egypt through the death of a lamb. And now he offers this meal and gives it new meaning. And he says that now I'm offering salvation to the whole world. But instead of a lamb, it was through the death of the Son of God. And so this meal now retells our story, refocuses our hope, and re-energizes our pursuit. Let's come to the table this morning. Let's worship together. Well, we remember his death and resurrection is for us. To come to the table, take the elements, hold them. Jerry will lead us to take them together as we restore ourselves around the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good, profound grace in Jesus. We thank you that you have offered yourself, that you have stepped in our place and drawn us in relationship to you. So we come to the table now to remember and and be refocused around what gives us ultimate meaning and to come under your lordship again to say we are your people. We are nourished by your death and we hope in your resurrection. In Jesus' name.